I wish we could just keep singing. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here once again with you and to be able to share the word of God this morning. And uh, really appreciate the opening Lindsay had. I thought you could keep on and just <laughs> preach the sermon. All about evidence of God. You know, we're going to talk a bit about that. Except you were looking around at things. And we're going to look inside. Somebody once asked a little kid was being told what a Christian is. And then he said, have I ever seen one? And uh, it's kind of what we're talking about. Have I ever seen one this morning? Anyways, I want to begin with a word of prayer. Then we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 17 this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the joy we have in knowing that we are redeemed people through the blood of Jesus Christ, that you have saved us and uh, we are completely yours. There's nothing more that we can do to make us more saved. You have adopted us into your family. You have given us your name. We are yours. And yet we confess as your children we don't always represent you well. And so I pray that this morning as we look to your word at the growth that needs to come into our own lives after our coming to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that uh, you would take through your spirit that inspired your word to come now and do that second part, illuminate into our own understanding and give application to our own hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 3. And uh, we haven't read this uh, this morning, so let me just take and uh, read through it, and you can follow along in your Bible. I'm reading the New American Standard. But uh, whatever version you have, I'm sure will be God's word as well. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, all which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. But now you also put on Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, here bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should uh, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, 
and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, kind of like what we were doing this morning, singing and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The Russian comedian Yakub Smirnov came to the U.S. a number of years ago, and he said, I discovered powdered milk. He said, amazing, just add water, and wow, you've got milk. Then I discovered orange powder, and again, just add water, and amazing, orange juice. He said, then one day I was walking through the store, and on the store shelf it said, baby powder. <laughs> and I thought, what an amazing country. <laughs> we are a generation of instants, aren't we? Just add a little bit and we have the final product. And we've imposed that mentality somewhat in the church. We expect instant Christians. Just take a person at a confession of faith, and voila, we've got a mini Christ. But it doesn't work that way, does it? It says the apostles were sent out preaching and the call that they gave was repent and be converted. I want to suggest something to you. There is something instant in that call. And that is that first part, repent. Because the Greek word for repent means simply to have a change of mind. And you can have a change of mind in an instant. Some of your spouses are like that, right? You think you kind of knew what you were doing and then all of a sudden there's this change of mind and you gotta grab the steering wheel and make a quick left turn. Well, that's repent. You make a quick change of mind and you decide to go in a new direction. But there's a second part of this, which I want to suggest is much less instant. And that is to be converted. To repent can be very quick. When we call on Christ as our savior, we become a Christian instantly. Like the thief on the cross, Jesus said to him, this very day you can be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. No questions. There was nothing more he had to go through. No catechism class, no nothing. No baptismal membership class. He could be in heaven. The repent was instant. But I want to suggest that if he actually had been able to come down from that cross and live a little longer, there would have been a lot of cleanup to do. C.S. Lewis, in his classic screw tape letters, tells of the dialogue between an elder demon to his young underling demon, Wormwood. And Wormwood has been assigned to a young man who, in the course of Wormwood taking and trying to tempt him in every other direction, this young man actually decides to become a Christian. And Wormwood feels absolutely he has failed as a demon. 
and Screwtape writes to Wormwood, don't despair. All the habits of the patient, both mentally and bodily, are still all in our favor. Isn't that true? When you became a Christian, didn't you still have the same temptations? Didn't you still find carnality wanted to sometimes float to the top? The old man still lives there, Paul says. Often the old man, by the way, is the young child. If you actually look and deal with some of those habits, the things you struggle with, it's not so much the old man, but it's the young child wanting to come out. Now, as I shared two weeks ago, when you become a Christian, it's instant. And there's nothing you can add to it to improve it. Nothing that can make you more saved than what happens when you repent. Your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I believe, personally, it's written down in pen, not in pencil. There are people who disagree with me, but whatever. However, the process of salvation is to be followed by a much longer process that we call in theology sanctification. And sanctification means to be set apart, to be made holy. We are made holy, we are declared holy on repentance because we have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But in and of ourselves, there's a lot of garbage to clean up. John Ortberg tells the story of proverbial Joe in his church. He says, Joe has the look that indicates he was baptized in lemon juice. You're having a baptismal service. Don't put lemon juice in the water. <laughs> By the way, wonderful to hear. And if you haven't been baptized, you know, I'm reminded of Stephen when he caught up with the Ethiopian eunuch and the eunuch accepted Christ. His question was, what hinders me from being baptized? That's a very good question. What hinders you? And I don't want to preach a sermon on it, but I want to suggest to you that the only thing that can hinder you from being baptized if, is if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ. You might have all kinds of other reasons or excuses, but only one thing can hinder you is if you don't know Jesus. And so if you know Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to be baptized. I always tell people when I did baptisms, you're turning on your signal. It doesn't mean you've arrived, but you're saying, I repented and I'm going in this direction now. You're just turning on your signal. And there's something marvelous when you turn on your signal. Other people encourage you to go in that direction. So do it, consider it. Anyways, that's another sermon. Well, he's talking about proverbial Joe and he says, proverbial Joe is always complaining. And one day he came in to John and said, I don't like your music. So John explained the rationale for the music they had in their church. He says, you know, we're trying to reach out to many people who don't aren't churched at all and they don't know our old church hymns and all the rest. We want music that's compatible with kind of where they're coming from and so we're an outreach church. And he said, uh, 
There wasn't a hint of comprehension. Joe retorted, I don't like the music. So John lengthened his discourse on why they were using the music. They were. And uh, Joe interrupts, I don't like the music. Joe said, Joe is caught in a time warp, but he's also caught in immaturity. Though he's been a Christian for over 50 years, he has never grown. And he makes this most telling insight. He says, after 50 years of being a Christian, no one is expecting Joe to become more Christian year by year. In fact, everyone is expecting Joe to be more like Joe. Isn't that a telling statement? Everyone is just expecting Joe to be more like Joe. You see, Joe hasn't grown in his Christian walk. I had a Joe in my church uh, one time. Oh, I've had probably several of them, or maybe multiples of them. But one that particularly sticks out in my mind. And he was very much like Joe. I don't like your music. He would come into my office virtually weekly to complain about something. But almost always, part of the discussion was, I don't like the young people. And he would kind of talk down about the young people of the church and berate them. And one day I decided, I think I've had enough of this. And so just very quietly in response, I said to this gentleman who was about 60 years old, I said, how many times older are you than the young people you're talking about? And he didn't know where I was going. He said, oh, about three times. And then I you know, did the thrust. I said, are you three times further down the road in your maturity than they? He never came into my office again to berate somebody. I remember being on a trip one time with, I was brand new in the ministry and we were talking as pastors, and I'm the little newbie pastor that doesn't know much yet. And uh, I had a very seasoned pastor who probably was much more tactful than I. But he, we were talking about this whole process of sanctification. And he made this very interesting comment. He said, I, I do find that our sanctification tends to somewhat be equal to our years of life. I thought, Ooh. you see, I wasn't that old a Christian then either. And I thought I was way up there, right? Because I'm a pastor. And I have to look back now and say, boy, you know, I've had to do a lot of growing since those times. But the fact is, sanctification takes time. In fact, it can take a whole lifetime. There are things you will learn right on your deathbed. I read an interesting book by Dr. Scott Peck, who kind of somewhat sympathetic to the Christian faith later in life. 
but uh, you know, I don't recommend him wholeheartedly, but he wrote the book, The Denial of Soul, largely on the issue of uh, euthanasia. And he somewhat uh, fairly strongly opposes it. And the reason he opposes it, he says, people actually learn things right on their deathbed. That only the process of dying can teach you. Your sanctification is gonna go right till when God calls you to heaven. Isn't that interesting? So this is where Paul is at in Colossians chapter three. In chapter one, you recall that he talked about Christ being preeminent and all sufficient so that to quote, he can reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of the cross. Chapter one, verse 20. Christ is the only one who could accomplish salvation for us. And he was sufficient to do it. And then in chapter two, he talks about how his salvation is complete for every believer so that there's nothing to add to it. There's nothing you can do to improve it. You have been made complete in him, he says. Your hope, your new hope, your, your destiny is absolutely settled when you come to Jesus. But now in chapter 3, he talks about needing to, quote, put off some things. And then he talks about having to put on some things. Now, some have said that it appears sometimes as Christians that you say we're saved by grace. But then the moment you're saved, you have to step back into works. Well, is that true? I want to suggest it's not a stepping back to works. In the sense it's not a reversion to works in the sense that you're trying to earn anything. That's done. Christ earned your salvation. There's nothing you can earn after coming to Christ. But there is something you can display. And that's the difference. And that's where, Lindsay, you talking about evidence of God. Where's the evidence of God in a person, right? We're called to display Christ. And so Paul uses the words to put off and to put on the new self. He uses the same words in Ephesians, the parallel chapter, chapter 4, verse 22, uh, and onward. The words are those of someone having to shed old or dirty clothes and then having to put on new ones, clean ones, because he has been bathed. It's not the putting on of new clothes that makes you clean, no, Christ made you clean. But why would you put on the dirty clothes after you've been bathed? So he says, put on the clean clothes. And this is wonderfully demonstrated in baptism, especially the way the early church sometimes did it. Because I'm told that they would go down to the river and you would literally come with one set of clothes to go into the river you would be baptized, and while you were in the river, you stripped those clothes, and you put on a new set to walk out. Isn't that great? What a great picture. You probably aren't going to do that. But I think it's a wonderful picture of what baptism symbolizes that you have been buried with Christ, co-buried as we said in Colossians 2. You have co-died, you have co-buried, co-risen with Christ. And when you walk out of the water, 
you've got a clean set of clothes to display. You've put off the old and you put on the new. Now we generally just throw on a baptismal robe or sometimes nowadays we've gone and just say, oh, wear whatever you want. And People come with their swimming trunks or whatever they do. Um, but it, it doesn't carry quite the same picture as if you went into the water with one set of clothes and then you came out wearing white clothes. It's a beautiful picture. The old self died, was buried with Christ. And Paul's saying, don't walk out of the water with your dirty clothes on. But as screw tape reminds us, all the old habits are still with us. And we need a renovation job, not just on the outside, but inside. A conversion to take place. A transformation. And how does that happen? Well, that's what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 3. And I want to suggest that the source of that transformation, he says, if you've been raised up with Christ, you've got to keep seeking the things which are above. But how do you know what's above? Well, he says in verse 16, I want, he goes right down to the end. He says, let the word of God dwell richly within you and set your mind on the same. You have to take and look to the word of God. It's the blueprint of what God wants to see in your life, the transformation he wants to make. Now, the interesting thing in Ephesians chapter 5, he doesn't talk about the word of God. He talks about, let, make sure that you are filled with the Spirit. And yet there are parallel passages which indicate that to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word. They aren't separate things. But you're supposed to be filled with the word of God. Let it dwell richly within you because that's the blueprint of what you're trying to instill in your life. It's not a knowledge-based curriculum, by the way. It's not that you have to know all these things. It's that you have to become these things. It's a character development, not a knowledge development. James 1 verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. There's little benefit just knowing it if you're not living it out. So first thing you have to do is discern God's mind. Seek the things above and set your mind on the same. In other words, decide that that's what you want to become. That's the source of transformation. You discern God's desire and then you commit to being that. Does it happen immediately? No. But if you don't have a goal in mind, it's not going to happen. Then he says, do away with sinfulness, verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Now, most of those things we have no problem saying, okay, those are sinful behaviors. But then he goes on to list a few other things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. G. Campbell Morgan calls those socially acceptable sins. We kind of realize, you know, the, the really bad sins you put away as a Christian, but it's amazing how we can keep the socially acceptable ones and hang on to them. But he says, do away with those as well. Do away with sinfulness. Warren Wearsby uh, calls these, he says, you have to put off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. And he uses the illustration of Lazarus being called from the tomb. And Jesus said when he came out, he said, 
take and let him go. He was bound up in his grave clothes and had to strip off what he had been buried with and given a clean set of clothes. Well, it's very similar to that. We put off the grave clothes, the things that are part of our fleshly inclinations. And I use the word inclinations very deliberately because we live in a day and age where people say, well, you know, there are some sins that you just have to kind of tolerate because that's somebody's inclination. Any of you hear that at all? You, none of you? I hear it all the time. Well, what do you mean that can be wrong? It's their inclination. People, I have a lot of inclinations that have no right to be in my life. I have to deal with them. Immorality to the Greeks was just an acceptable thing because they said that's every man's inclination. And to recognize that it was every man's inclination, their, the gods, the temples to their gods were all filled with prostitutes. You worshipped the gods by going to the local brothel, really. Because that was considered by the Greeks just a man's inclination. But Paul here says, no, you work against your inclination. Virtually every time you have to grow in an area in your life, you have to work against an inclination. Do you know that? If you say, I want to grow in hospitality, it's probably because you don't feel very hospitable. It's your inclination to keep people away. If you say, I've got to take and grow in my speech, it's probably because you don't think very well before you say something. That's your inclination. We're always working against things in our life, and it's a lifelong process. The world steeps you in having to get things for yourself. And the inclination you have to work against is this thing about getting, so that Paul says to the Ephesians, let him who doesn't work go out and work. So you can get more? No. He says, so he may have something to give away. Oh, that's a big transformation. You mean I'm supposed to, as a Christian, start thinking about working so I can give away instead of get more? That goes against our inclination, doesn't it? Some of us say, well, you know, once I have enough, I'm just going to quit because I have enough for myself. I don't hear too many people say, I'm gonna keep working because now I can give so much more away. But that's what Paul's saying. Go out and work so that you can give it away. If you have a nasty tongue, you've gotta to replace that with a gracious tongue. I, I had a nasty tongue. I grew up in a family of six boys. Can you imagine the language in a family of six boys? We're nasty to each other, we're sarcastic. And I just thought this is normal language. And I came into the ministry with that. I had a very sarcastic sense of humor. Probably still do somewhat, you probably catch it sometimes. But you know the Lord talked to me about that. And one day early in my ministry, God said, you know, I want you to go through the book of Proverbs. And I want you to write out every verse that has to do with speech. I was amazed at how much God had to say about my tongue. 
wow, it's somewhat transformative. We have to learn to be encouraging instead of critical. One of the great jobs I have right now, people say, what are you doing it's now that you're retired? It's like you're doing nothing. I have the great job of being a cheerleader for everyone else. Isn't that great? So many people have invested in my life critiquing me to try to make me better. often was very discouraging and sometimes very humbling. But now I get to take and say, I don't want to be a critic. I want to be a cheerleader. So I'm in a church now with three young pastors, all new to the ministry. It's like I've hit the jackpot, being able to encourage them. I don't sit there on Sunday morning like some of the Joe's in the church. What's wrong with the I sit there. What can I say that will encourage this person? I know the flaws. But that's not what it's about. So Paul goes on in Ephesians 5.1. He says, I want you to become imitators of God as beloved children. That's the all-encompassing. If you simply look at this list and think, well, that's the only ones you have to work on. No, I think that is just kind of a brief synopsis of all the areas in our life we have to address. But the fact is we have to look at all of our life, all of our behaviors, and say, what imitates God? And what am I proud to wear as a child of God? When I was, before I became a Christian, I stole something, some money from my dad. We, were, we grew up in abject poverty, so money was scarce. And so rather than asking and being refused, I simply stole and in my first year of Bible college, one week, the Lord just absolutely haunted me about that, even though it had been years before. I said, Don, you're going to have to take and admit that to your dad, or I'm never going to use you. And I argued with God all week at Bible college because my dad was often known as Honest Abe. Do you know what it's like to go back to your dad who's known for his honesty and say, I'm your child, but I've been dishonest? You see, I wasn't an imitator of my dad. And I knew it would absolutely break my heart. I had to also do it to a store where I'd stolen some things. I had no problem with the store. I went there right away at the end of the week, but I held off and held off and held off with my dad. The interesting thing about that story is next week when I came home from school, my father had had a stroke. It was the only time I remember my dad when I admitted to him what I had done, he took me and held me in his arms. The only other time I felt his arms was when I got a spanking. But that time he held me in his arms and he blessed me for what I was pursuing. The next week, if I had waited one more week, my father couldn't speak. He died three days later. He was 45. Lay aside falsehood, he says. Be imitators of God. He's your father. 
What makes him proud? That you're honest like he is. I was so glad I did that. We are practicing, as Clement of Alexandria said, that the true Christian is practicing being God. I don't like that term, being God, because it sounds like we try to be almighty. But we're trying to be godlike. Peter Drucker, the great leadership organizational guru, says the church is in the people development business. And when you think of sanctification, that's what, it is, what it's about, right? We are growing you in development. And then he goes on, he says, not only do I want you to take and set your sights on things which are above, and I want you to put away the grave clothes, and I want you to put on the grace clothes, but he said, fourthly, I want you to practice loving community. He talks then about being chosen of God and how now you come together in this bond of unity where the peace of Christ is supposed to rule in one body. And then how you start ministering to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and being grateful. Wow. What's he talking about? He's talking about being in a community. You know, we're having smaller families all the time. Our birth rate is declining all the time, number of children per family. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think it was down to 1.2 children per family. I don't know how you have 0.2 childs in her family, except some never grow past being a whole complete person. Uh, <laughs> but whatever. We're having smaller families over the decades. My mom came from a family of 12 kids. There's a lot of maturity that happens when you've got 11 siblings. And you've got to learn how to mesh with all of them. My wife often makes the comment, she was the youngest of three in her family. And uh, people often will retort, oh, you were the spoiled child. She says, no, actually, I have a theory that the youngest child actually becomes the best developed child because they have to adapt to everybody else. And I think she has a point there. The larger the family, the more everyone is grinding on you, so to speak. They're honing you. We're paying a price socially with all our small families. We don't know how to care for each other. We don't know how to focus on other people's needs. We don't know how to communicate kindly. We don't know how to work for other people's interests instead of just our own. We have people who don't know how to function in community. And if you don't believe that, ask a school teacher whose primary job, most of them will say, is no longer teaching but being a social worker. Now, you can't take and fault anyone for the family size that you grew up in. But the marvelous thing is that God said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans in this world. I'm going to send you my spirit into you so that you have a comforter to work with you. But then I'm also going to place you in spiritual families. Isn't this, the church is a marvelous, marvelous conception of God. Because it doesn't matter what you grew up in your own family with. God says, I'm placing you in my family. I'm giving you other relationships that are going to grow and develop you. There are some things you just can't grow on your own. 
And he says, in that family, you're going to learn some virtues that you can never develop alone. Things like forgiveness and patience and reconciliation. You can only learn those in community. And he says in verse 15 and 16, I want you to coach and coax each other to develop. I think one of the great dangers of the COVID church on Zoom, and I know some people absolutely love it, have never returned from it, but the COVID church weights the church on the hero pastor as communicator and it denigrates the parishioner to be a spectator rather than an active contributor to everyone else's growth. I watch you when you come together in the foyer and with each other. You're all like little bees, you know, buzz, 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 buzz. It's marvelous. I always said you can tell the spiritual health of a community by the noise in the church before the service. I was never one of these to say, you know, you should just walk into the church and be absolutely quiet. No. It's all the talking and the joy of seeing each other and contributing to each other that is part of the life of the church that tells me this church is alive and it's healthy and they love each other and they're a family together. And we need community for our social and spiritual development. Here's an interesting thought. You can let me know if you think this is heresy or not. But in the Old Testament, there was a man by the name of Judah, leader of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You know that David came from the tribe of Judah and ultimately Christ did. His name meant praise. He came from a family of 12. He wasn't the firstborn, Reuben was. He was the third. But he's lifted up as praiseworthy. And what he was known for in his lifetime was the fact that he saved Joseph's life from his brothers who were going to kill him. And then he also pleaded for Benjamin's life before Joseph in Egypt and was willing to take his place. So he was lifted up as a person of praise. Now in the New Testament, you have another person with the same name, but you don't recognize it because the Greek is Judas. Judah and Judas is the same name. But he also was in a group of 12. Interesting, isn't it? Do you know him as a person for praise? No. We've learned to revile Judas. But how did he become that way? Well, there's always a little addition when we talk about Judas. We say Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means in the Greek of Karyoth. And if you look where Cariath is, it's in the southern part of Galilee, pardon me, of, of Judah. And all the other 11 disciples were from the north. Now I wanna suggest something. I suggest that Judas always felt out of the circle. never quite a part of the family. Well, Judah led the circle. Isn't that interesting? What a difference when you're a part of the circle 
or when you feel outside of the circle. If you want to develop character, especially Christian character, you need to have a band of brothers and sisters because that's where character grows. And in closing, and I realize I've gone a little long here, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ. That's apprenticeship language. An apprentice who was properly trained by a mentor could pass his work off in the name of his master. So if you do things in the name of Jesus, you're saying, I apprenticed under Jesus and I can pass off the work in my life as his work. This is the goal of sanctification, to be passed off as the work of Jesus Christ. It's not a solo effort on your part to become Christ-like, hardly. When you accepted Christ, though, a new spirit was put within you. And Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 becomes operational in your life. Work out your salvation. Not work for it, but work it out. In other words, make it manifest. But with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you now, causing you both to will and to do the Father's good pleasure. You have an ally in your sanctification, God himself inside of you, giving you the desire to become Christ-like. Isn't that great? Proverbial Joe doesn't have to look and act more like Joe after 50 years. He can literally be played off as the work of Jesus Christ, and you can too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you haven't left us as orphans in this world to find our way on our own or to simply remain as we are, but you have goals and destinies in mind for us. and You want to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And thank you that that's not solely our work. You have a vested interest because we're walking around with your name. And we pray that people would be able to look on and when they try to seek evidence of Jesus Christ can say, I've seen him in somebody else's life. Amen.